Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Over the year we've been working through Matthew's Gospel and we're up to that verse in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel. Last week we finished with this strange and yet it's one of those proverbial verses of the Bible. Uh, being out as innocent of doves or as wise as serpents is just a phrase of the language of the English literature because of this passage. And so we've got this proverbial verse which is strange though about sheep, wolves, serpents, doves and all muddled in together there. The context of this statement was the mission of the 12 disciples. It actually goes back to the end of chapter 9 if you'll look back there in verse 36. When he saw the crowds he had compassion for, for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of a harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. And he called to him the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. You then have the names of the twelves in verse 5. These twelves Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was Jesus instructed and commissioned the apostles. It's as he did that that he said this strange verse in 16 about being in the midst of wolves as sheep, being wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. For the response that Jesus was expecting to reach these 12 apostles, the response he was expecting was one of hostility and opposition, of wolves tearing at the flesh of the lambs. So his concern for the apostles, whom he was sending out into this conflict, was that they be wise wise as serpents but not serpents in any other form they were to be innocent as doves wise as serpents who do not pick fights but are always on the ready who are crafty and clever subtle amongst almost to the point of deceit but it is a strange image isn't it because nearly all the other biblical references to the serpents are negative indeed the devil himself is called a serpent Innocent as doves is a less striking image, easier to understand in concept, but actually much harder to do in practice, isn't it? We are all more serpent-like than we are dove-like. But still harder is to combine the two together, to be wise as serpent at the same time as being innocent as dove. That combination is very difficult. For as we go through the struggles of life and learn the wisdom of serpents, it's all too easy to become like the world. It's all too easy to become cynical and devious as the enemies we are fighting. It's all too easy to lose our innocence and our righteousness. So let's ponder what it means, this wisdom of serpents that Jesus was commanding his apostles. The moment that he was sending them into the world, the impending arrival of the kingdom of heaven is an important moment is an important part of understanding Jesus' command. 
uh, the disciples at that moment haven't yet recognised Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. To them he was like John the Baptist, a prophet, declaring the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Greater than John, for John himself indicated that he was going to be greater, doing more extraordinary miracles than John, but yet not recognised as the king of the kingdom. And they certainly had no idea yet about his future, his rejection, his betrayal, his crucifixion. He was going about teaching the kingdom of heaven, teaching in the synagogues of Galilee, preaching the kingdom, bringing many of the saving events of the kingdom. But his mission was still limited. He was healing the sick, he was exorcising the demons. But here in chapter 10, as he gives to the 12 the authority to do the same thing, it's still within Israel. It's a limited mission he's sending them out to. They're not to go to the, beyond the Jews. They're not to go to the other nations. Uh, the word Gentiles means nations. And as he expects, they will be, verse 17, delivered over to the courts and flogged in synagogues. Verse 18, dragged before kings and governors, even Gentiles. Verse 19, the families will be split. Verse 22, they'll be hated by all. Verse 23, they'll be persecuted wherever they go. His expectation is a negative result, a negative reaction. But notice the time that they're operating in. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. When Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven, he is proclaiming that it's at hand, it's just about to arrive. He's talking about something that will happen very soon, in fact, immediately. But before they've gone throughout all of Israel, the kingdom of heaven is coming. The Son of Man will appear. Now we must understand this moment if we're going to apply this passage appropriately. If we're going to understand this commission. To understand why they were going out without money and without spare clothes or provisions. To understand being serpents and doves, sheep amongst the wolves. For the rejection they were about to face was really their teacher's rejection. Something they had seen in people's reaction to Jesus, but something they didn't really understand. And so they didn't expect it of themselves, any more than they expected that he would lose in a crucifixion. But Jesus was pointing out the inevitable to them. For the proverbial wisdom of verse 24 is that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And if that proverb is true, then look at the conclusion of verse 25. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, the lord of the flies, the lord of the evil, how much more were they malign those of his household? Do not look at the crowds and success. Do not be filled with awe at the wonder of the miracles. Look at the rejection. Look at the opposition. Look and understand that you are going into conflict and therefore be wise. 
beware of men, as he says in verse 9. You're going to participate in the teacher's mission. Well, you're going to participate in the teacher's rejection. The two go hand in hand. Uh, it's still, he's still expounding to them what he had in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at through the course of our winter here. For there he told them right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All the blessings that are given, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And when finally he says, blessed are you, it's blessed are you when you are going to be persecuted. These people called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, called to fish for men, are the people who will be persecuted with Jesus. So as wised up serpents, notice whom to fear. By all means, beware of men. But don't be anxious and fearful of them, for the Spirit of God will be with you. Notice verse 19. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So as he says in verse 26, so have no fear of them. And he's given them three reasons why not to have fear of them. Firstly, the truth will out. Verse 26, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What Jesus and the disciples were doing and teaching will be vindicated in the long run as the innocent and the right that they are. What their opponents are doing is wrong and will be seen for how wrong it is in due time. You know, the only reason we remember Pontius Pilate in human history is because he crucified Jesus. If he hadn't done that, well, how many other Roman procurators do you know by name? You see, in due time, it comes out who is in the right and who is in the wrong. So don't fear. And don't fear and withhold your testimony to the kingdom. What I tell you in the dark, verse 27, say out in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim to the housetops. Speak fearlessly, for the truth will out. Secondly, second reason not to fear men is because they can't hurt your soul. It's verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who does destroy, can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is an important principle to understand. By all who take risks in battle, in business, in whatever risk you want to take, we are fighting for, and whatever we're fighting for, whatever the cost we can face, it's always important to sit down and think out what's the worst case scenario. If I can work out what's the worst case scenario and I can work out what to do under those situations, well, then I can take the risk. Well, what's the worst case scenario? They kill your body? They can't kill your soul. So don't fear them. Our victory is eternally assured. Our losses will not be permanent 
or total. And the third reason, God is in control. Verses 29 to 31 speaks of God concerned for the sparrows and you're of more value than a sparrow. Even the hairs in your head are numbered. For God cares for you down to the least smallest detail. So verse 31, fear not. Why don't you fear? Well, here are the three reasons, you see. The truth will out. They can't take your soul from you. And God is in control. But in this section, you're commanding, Jesus commands the disciples not to fear, but did you notice that he also tells them who they should fear? It's back there in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Here is the wisdom of the serpent, knowing whom to fear and whom not to fear. Picking the difference between those two is really important. Don't fear men, they can only kill your body. But fear God, for he can destroy both body and soul in the afterlife of hell. This is an extraordinarily strong statement, isn't it? It's extraordinarily strong about the, the reality of life and death and life after death, about the spiritual world and its importance over the physical world and its importance. But to discuss verse 28 would take us beyond where we're going at the moment. Just notice that in verse 32, 33, where Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So if we're to fear God, then we're also to fear Jesus. For as we acknowledge him, he will acknowledge us. And as we deny him, he will deny us. And so our future eternity is seen in our reaction to Jesus. He then is one to fear. But for now, understand the teacher's mission. For if the disciples are not above their master and will suffer as their master suffers, it's important they understand the mission for which they're going to suffer. I mean, there's no point going to war for a cause that you do not know there's no point being told you're going to risk all and possibly lose your life, but I'm not going to tell you what for. What's the mission? Why? And in that, he indicates something of his own future, for taking up the cross is the way to follow him. See, Jesus didn't invite his disciples into an easy life. Peace, profit, prosperity, Comfort, ease, enjoyment. Become a Christian, solve all your problems is not the message of the Lord Jesus. Jesus challenged his disciples with the same self-sacrifice that he himself was to endure and undertake. It was to be a time of conflict and opposition, of hostility and hatred that would go to your most precious treasures, your family, even your own life. It's not all gloom and horror, for the rewards of eternal life are real. And those who acknowledge Jesus now 
will be acknowledged by him in heaven, verse 33, and those who lose life now will indeed find it in verse 39. But the sword of division that Jesus brings will alienate some and attract others. And those who welcome and help the disciples because they come in the name of Jesus, because they come as one of his disciples, they will receive the reward. Even if it's that they've just offered him a, a, a cup of cold water because he's come in the name of the Lord Jesus, even that small gesture will be noticed by God and you will not miss your reward. And so the actions of the disciples are to be undertaken with understanding, knowing the full costs and rewards of standing firm for Jesus. He doesn't send them out in ignorance or folly, but with the wisdom of the serpent, they are to face the enemies and dangers, knowing what is at stake, knowing the support and help they will receive from God, knowing the conflict and suffering they are also going to receive from men, knowing that they're engaged in the same conflict their master is for the mission is really his mission and the division and opposition and conflict are just part and parcel of it. My friends, it's still like this so often, isn't it? That people want to say, well, look, become a Christian and you'll solve problems. Well, you do. But that ultimately is not the reason for becoming a Christian and what you will get is added problems in becoming the Lord Jesus' disciple. For Jesus is the Prince of Peace, yes, but he comes with division. For people do not accept him and reject him violently. If they rejected him, they would reject people who come in his name. And it's just not honest salesmanship to say to people, well, become a Christian and all your problems will be solved. You can have a happy life from here on in. Everything will be wonderful, all the tests. That's just not true. Become a Christian and you join in a mission that is rejected by humanity and will lead you to misunderstanding and conflict and that misunderstanding and conflict and division will go right into the very family that you come from and amongst the friends you come from and will lead you to all manner of suffering. That is the invitation of Jesus. It's true salesmanship, not false and phony salesmanship. But when we read the gospel accounts, we have to keep thinking about their moment back then in chapter 10 and our moment here. It, it's not the difference between the first century and the 21st century. It's the difference between that side of the cross and our side of the cross. For nothing much changes from the first century to the 21st century. The change happened in the first century when the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again. In chapter 10, they're on the other side of the cross from us. And so we need to understand their moment and ours for they lived before the cross and the resurrection while we live after the cross and the resurrection. They actually had to follow Jesus physically walking along the road behind him and with him on the way to Jerusalem and on the way to Calvary. We have to follow Jesus spiritually, which may lead us into all kinds of places, but it's unlikely that it's going to lead us to a hill in Jerusalem. They were all Jews speaking only to Israel, warning them to, of the last chance that Israel had as the Messiah came to be crucified. 
hardening the hearts of Israel in order to crucify the Messiah, we are living in the time of world evangelism that started with a great commission after Jesus' death and resurrection. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus said to these same apostles, sending them out again, something slightly different, namely, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Notice in this passage that the time that it's time to go to all nations, whereas in Matthew 10, only Israel, never the nations. And notice this time, the promise is that he will be with them right until the end of the age. For the work they commenced within Israel before the cross and resurrection is in some way to continue after the cross and resurrection, but now differently. It's now to go outside of Israel to all nations. And central to the plan of Jesus is this crisis of the cross. He came into the world with the intention of suffering for the salvation of mankind. He came as the innocent dove and he came as the innocent lamb, both of which were used in the temple sacrificial system. He didn't come to conquer by force of arms. He didn't come to establish God's kingdom in unrighteousness. He came to suffer for our salvation the rejection of his crucifixion. And so, from the beginning his life was to be marked by the issues of division and loyalty. Some would remain loyal to their leaders, loyal to their families, and so reject him. Others would see the truth claims of Jesus and split with their leaders and their families, and they'd leave all and oppose all and follow the man who was heading for crucifixion. You'll see the division of family there in verse 37 of our passage today. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Tribalism is a very powerful force in our society. The different tribes we belong to. You know, the vast majority of Australians vote in exactly the same way as their parents. Every election. The policies that the governments, are, the parties are putting up are really an irrelevance. If you're a dyed-in-the-wool Labor man, you vote Labor. If you're a dyed-in-the-wool Liberal man, you vote Liberal. It's just that are you a Holden or a Ford? Are you a Rugby League or Rugby Union? Are you north side of the harbour or south side of the harbour? It's just... There is a certain kind of, this is who I am, and because this is who I am, that's how I'll behave. And very rarely will people move outside of that tribal background that they have. Often when we invite people to come to Bible study, they say, no thanks, I'm a Catholic. As if Catholics can't read the Bible, as if they can't study the Bible. You don't need it if you belong to that tribe, which... I'm sure Cardinal Pell would say is untrue. But the tribalism is, more, is stronger than even their own Catholic belief. It's very sad. 
The divisive call of Jesus was the call to life and death, was the call of the cross. And so we can see the question was for them and is really still for us the same. It's the question of whom to fear. Not him who can kill the body, but him who kills the soul in hell. That's the choice of wisdom and understanding, the choice of the serpent who is the innocent as dove, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the choice of the hero and the heroine of faith, for they're living and dying for something greater than their own bodily existence here and now. You're living for something greater than yourself. Ultimately, friends, if you have nothing to die for, you have nothing to live for. And so we're constantly reminded to remember the cross. The gospel we preach is the gospel of the cross. The means of our salvation is the sacrifice of the cross. The meal we celebrate at the Lord's Supper proclaims the cross. The basis of our Christian morality is the cross. The manner of our ministry is the cross. The, the model of a husband's love for his wife is the cross. The, the knowledge of God's love for us is the cross. The, the assurance of our salvation is the cross. The understanding of the suffering of the world is found in the cross. Christianity is cross-centered, just that it is Christ-centered. And in remembering the cross, we remember the sacrifice for our sins and the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us and the eternal life that he has gained for us. But it's all so easy to eat and drink at the table of the Lord without identifying ourselves with the division and conflict that gives rise to the cross, without bearing the rejection and hatred that leads to our Saviour being killed, without acknowledging the face of opposition, without mentioning him at work or talking about him with our neighbours or encouraging our children to give up their earthly careers in order to proclaim the kingdom of heaven or even go overseas as missionaries to proclaim it to other nations. It's also easy to celebrate the Lord's Supper without ever taking the cross upon ourselves and following him. But Jesus says that you must lose your life for his sake you must take up his cross. It's also easy to want to be a Christian in a Christian culture and a Christian nation where everybody tolerates us in peace and harmony because we don't shout out the gospel from the housetops. We don't tell people the place of Jesus. We don't tell our family. We don't confess him before others. Now, when we take the bread and the cup, we're accepting his death for us. But in accepting the salvation that he won for us, we're also accepting the rejection that we will share with him. So we're accepting more than salvation, we're accepting the hatred that the disciple of the crucified must suffer. We're accepting the divisions, the sword that he came to bring, we're accepting the death to self and the losing of ourselves for his sake. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. How are we going at the office? How are we going at the family? How are we going in the family? Do we duck and weave? Well, we've got to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. But we don't have to be cowards. 
before the face of those who can do nothing more than kill our bodies. We have to be faithful before our God, who one day will call us to account for speaking up for his son or failing to speak up for his son because we were ashamed of him. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your son, for his willingness to suffer for us. We thank you that he is indeed our Lord and Saviour. And yet, Father, you know the fear we have of men rather than the fear of you. And it leads us to deny your son, to be ashamed of your son, to hold back from telling others of your son. Take this fear from us, please, Father, that we may fear you, not them, that we might take up our cross and follow him, that we may proudly and gladly be identified with our master, not only in the salvation that he's won for us, but in, also in the suffering that he has endured for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.